Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Merry Christmas. It is still the season of Christmas, and therefore we do say very Merry Christmas. We have, uh, if you are uh, new to celebrating Christmas as a season, I deeply encourage you to, uh, to learn how to do so. I, I would encourage you to consider the fact that Christmas is not one day. It is not as if we start playing Christmas music right after Thanksgiving and then we celebrate Christmas. Actually, as a church, we've adopted the practice of following the church calendar, which was given by God's grace through the working of the church throughout the ages. And in the West, it has formed a tradition which helps us to recognize the whole life of Jesus Christ throughout the entire year. And the point of celebrating Christmas as a season is that the significance of what happens at Christmas is much too important to relegate to one particular Christmas Eve service or even one Christmas Sunday and then move on with the rest of the year. No, in fact, in fact Christmas is traditionally celebrated as 12 complete days. Uh, you, might, you may know that song which keys you into that part of our history on the 12th day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. And then there's a, a whole litany that you have to go through. It takes a very long time to travel through that song because it takes a long time to travel through the season of Christmas. The point is that Christmas is the most significant thing that has ever happened in the world. And the reason I say the most significant is because wrapped up in Christmas is all of the rest of the purposes of Jesus Christ's life. Without his incarnation, the atonement could never be possible because the book of Hebrews tells us that the atonement was 
possible because he took on a form like his brothers, the, one, the ones for whom he made an atonement. So we have been, as a people, celebrating Christmas for a number of days. I hope that, uh, that this shapes your future celebrations of Christmas. One of the things that we've done in our home this year, because Emily's parents are with us, uh, we've been able to have a number of gifts throughout the days. They brought so many gifts that we couldn't open them at once. And the point is to underscore and to amplify the, what, what happens at the coming of Christ. And so this is a right and wonderful time of joy. It's a right and wonderful time of celebration. It's a time for slaying the fatted calves and for pulling out the best wine and for pulling out the greatest desserts and that Esther price you've been storing all year. This is the time to celebrate with things to God's glory. We don't celebrate the things in themselves. We celebrate them to God's glory. We use them in our celebration. And, and if you just say, well, it matters more that we celebrate in our hearts, but the way that that meaning came to your heart is through external means. God uses the means of grace to produce a transformation in his people. And so it can't just be the case that we worship in our hearts and in our souls privately. No, we are in the body. We are celebrating the incarnation and so it's right to use the things of God's world to celebrate joyously. So I do hope that you are still celebrating Christmas, even though it is no longer Christmas Day, for it is Christmas Tide, which is one of the keys to understanding that song that we sang at the, at the beginning, which I'm going to emphasize in just a moment. But here's the dilemma that I want to address this morning, that even in the midst of joyous Christmas celebrations, none of us even at the height of our joy, can ever escape the reality that this world is filled with broken and sinful people. The New Testament presents a picture of the, the Christian life as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And I think one of the chief sorrows in the Christian life is this, that all human beings have felt a sting of loss and destruction, and it is unable to be coped with by the resources that they have in their hearts and in their souls. People without Jesus Christ do not have the capacity to deal with the tragedy around them in this sin-touched world. Yes, the world does display the glory of our Creator, and yet we know from the first chapters of the Scriptures that glory has been marred and twisted in a sense. Not that God's glory has been marred, but that our perception of His grace. There is an element of sin and death that is in the world. Uh, one of the chief uh, ways this was brought home to me this year was right after our Christmas Eve service. I went to go pick up some food on the way home from my wife, and the line at the restaurant was exceptionally long. I have never waited more than 25 minutes for food in a drive-thru, and yet I did that night. But here's the point I bring up this illustration. Not that my night was delayed, but that everyone around me was losing their minds. People were shouting and screaming and yelling. This was Christmas Eve, and they're yelling insults and slander in through the windows of the restaurant at the employees who are apparently dealing with a major crisis. I've never, I, it was something significant. They were still, they still had the lights on, and yet the lines were long. People were driving off. People were trying to make an order but not pay for it and not pick up their food. It was chaos. 
And it was a wonderful thing that God helped me to see. The point is, even in the midst of our joyous celebration, this world is still touched by sin. When we sang, God rest ye merry gentlemen, this morning, we said that Christ was born precisely, quote, to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. The third stanza said, to save us from Satan's power and might. We know that we are of God, 1 John 5 says, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. What a, what a terrible thing, and yet we still believe in the grace of Christ and the current reign of Christ. Beyond our culture's unique manifestations of this problem, all nations, all peoples throughout all ages have attested to a persistent malaise, something that is deeply wrong, that cannot be named entirely, but can be felt. It is a visceral reaction to the things of sin. But the, the problem is this, that no one apart from Christ has ever discovered a cure of their own making. How does the coming of Christ address this? How does the coming of Christ address a McDonald's drive through in which everyone is losing their minds because their appetites aren't being satisfied and they're becoming inconvenienced? How does joy to the world actually come to the world? Yes, we know that in the coming of Jesus Christ, joy came to the world, but how is it to get out there to touch the world? Because we can leave this place and go even just a few blocks from here and begin to see the effects of sin everywhere. Not just in nature, but in us, in people. The question is, how can God declare or announce that there is peace on earth when there clearly isn't peace on earth? Nations are still fighting each other. We're still fighting amongst ourselves. The question I want to ask this morning is, ultimately, what is the solution to the deeply fractured state of the entire world? And to that end, I want to look at Paul's writings to Titus as he instructs the church on these four points. First, he demonstrates our condition without Jesus Christ, which, although I've mentioned in brief and highlighted a few illustrations, I want to look at closely in the text. How was it that God appeared in Jesus Christ to be the solution for the condition of men without Christ? And then the purpose for which Jesus Christ came. So much of our understanding of the gospel is truncated at the cross. And the full extent of the gospel does not end in the atonement. And in fact, it must be understood that the central purpose of Christ's incarnation was not merely atonement without transformation. They go together, and they're part of the same gospel. They are the entire kernel of truth. They cannot be divorced from one another. And to that end, having been sanctified, Paul tells Titus to tell his people to be devoted to good works. As we read in first, uh, excuse me, as we read in Titus, Paul articulates a problem in the world and our common experience, and it is this. It is we ourselves. It is not just that the ground produces thorns and thistles, as God pronounced a curse on the ground, but we ourselves produce thorns and thistles. In verse 3 of Titus 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. 
passing our days in malice and envy. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, you, you may remember how John Gray took us through Psalm 90, saying, all our days pass away under your wrath. Here Paul says, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. If you just turn to any news channel and watch for five minutes, hated by others and hating one another. This is clearly the condition of all men apart from Christ. They are held captive to things that they destroy. Paul says, we were foolish. We were once led astray. And so human man, man apart from Christ, thinks to himself, if only we could renounce these follies through wisdom. If we could seek out wisdom, if we could study philosophy and understand rational thought, maybe we could put an end to these destructive practices. But Paul here tells us the mystery of iniquity. He says that we are enslaved to passions. And the word passions is often, in other translations, written as the word desires. This is the mystery of iniquity. We are held captive to the things that we want. It isn't as if we are in folly, enslaved to sin, and if we only could come to our senses, we would be delivered. No, Paul says that we are enslaved to our passions. Our appetites or our passions, a desire to consume something, has consumed us. We are trapped apart from Christ in our passions. We are trapped in things that we are held captive to, but the reason that we are held captive to those things is because we love them. We're held captive on our own choosing, and yet we cannot cease to choose those things. That's what Paul is trying to impress upon Titus. Before Christ, we ourselves were enslaved to things we wanted, and they were destructive to us, and yes, and yet it was as if we wanted to be destroyed. Psychologists call this kind of thing a death wish. They, they learned that a lot long after Paul learned it. The point is this, outside of Christ, every man is divided against himself, and yet we love the things which ruin us. That is the mystery of iniquity, is in the tasting of the apple we detect the poison, and yet we take another bite. That's the problem with man apart from sin. But here's a greater problem. Our sin is not constrained to just personal vices. Our sin does not just affect only us. Our sin affects others. He says that all of our days are passing away in malice, with ill intent, with a deep desire that other people be destroyed. And not only do our days pass away in malice, they pass away in envy. We see the good that someone else has, and we want that good for ourselves. Not only do we hate them, but we want to take their things. Jealousy is idolatry, and that jealousy is coveting the goods that others have such that we would have them and they would not. And not only that, we attribute their goods, the things that they have, to malice. We attribute their goods, the things that they have, which are graces from God, we attribute those things as evil and pernicious, that they did something evil to get those things. We have become functionally Marxists and communists in our thinking. 
We think that if someone has a good thing, they must have oppressed someone else to get it. Paul says that we are spending our days in malice and envy, hating others, being hated by others, and hating each other, hating one another. Not only do we want other people's things, you may have detected this happening in your own life, we also jealously desire the virtues that our neighbor has. We want to be seen as great or wise or, or powerful or helpful, but we don't want to be seen as humble and meek and mild. We don't want to actually have virtue. We want to be seen as great. We don't want to be great in God. Not only do we want to take the virtues of others, but we want to give them our blame, our guilt. If, if something's wrong in me, it's because society made me that way. We often attribute defection or sin or the working out of sinful patterns in someone's life and say, well, it must be because they had bad parents or because they went to a poor school or they lived in a bad neighborhood or someone was oppressing them somehow. And yet we never analyze what is it in the person that has done this to themselves. Have they not fallen under the weight of their own sin? Our modern age, our culture in this country is completely obsessed with attempting to solve problems, the problems of sin, with the diabolical art of slander and accusation. I have, I have no desire to make our pulpit political. One thing I do, though, is I occasionally look at the news, but I can't stand to go to any of the news sites so I just go to the news aggregators. For example, Google has a news aggregation service. And I don't even read the stories. I just read the headlines to see what are we talking about here. And I did it during the age of Obama. And I did it during the age of Trump. And I don't care whether you like Trump more than Obama or whatever. That's not my point. My point is every article was about how it's Obama's fault. And now that Trump's in power, every article is how it's Trump's fault. Our culture is obsessed with blaming other people, and it's obsessed with blaming people that we don't like. We try to create divisions between us to solve this problem. We use the state to do it, but we also do it in our own thinking. People who are overly political try to use the state as a weapon to try to separate right from left, and they take the vox populi, the voice of the people, and they try to legislate their morality so that other people will conform. Instead of adopting God's rules, they create their own preferences, and they try to make a declaration between the righteous and the unrighteous. Try as we might as a culture to partition away the evil, oh, it's always the Democrats, or oh, it's always the Republicans, we can never draw the boundaries tight enough. You will see this increasingly as our culture continues to go back to the well of trying to partition people apart. You'll see this happen, that inevitably someone for, from our own tribe will transgress, and then they have to be ostracized, and we narrow the circle a little bit more. The problem is, it won't be enough. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a person who was enslaved by the Russians in what they called the gulags. And the gulags were a place very much like the, the internment camps or the detention camps that the Nazis had, where people worked in order to make ridiculous things. For example, in in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, he describes building a brick wall one year, and the next year they took the brick wall down. The point that the Soviets were doing is they were oppressing people into hard service. And through this, Solzhenitsyn was able, through his experience, to see a picture of the nature of the human condition. He describes the Marxist approach of creating a difference between the wealthy and the workers, and he saw the end that it would lead to. He saw this approach and criticized it. He said, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere else insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. It won't work. The, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Solzhenitsyn was saying that he observed what the tendency in the cult, cultural Marxism of his world, that it would never be effective. Because as soon as we partition, we have to do it again. And we will come down to the point where we are, like Paul said to Titus 2,000 years ago, hating others and being hated by others. If we are to be at peace, if we are to have joy in this world and peace with men, if we are to have peace with God and others and ourselves, we clearly must deal with the problem of evil. But the dilemma is this, how can we being evil deal with evil? How can bad trees produce good fruit? How can people who are trapped in evil undo the evil that they are captured with? Being transformed by grace in this verse, Paul is able to, without dismissal or excuse, clearly own these sins as things to be renounced. You see, man apart from Christ has no way to deal with his guilt and shame, and therefore he, he rejects identifying with his sin. He wants it to be someone else's sin. And yet, Paul says in these verses, we ourselves were once. One of the first proofs of grace working in a person's life is the deliverance from a delusion of trying to disown your sin. In fact, you cannot come to Christ unless you are willing to confess your sins. And therefore, one of the sure signs of the operation of the Holy Spirit in someone is when they stop saying it's someone else's fault. Yes, it may be someone else's fault in certain circumstances, but my sin is never someone else's fault. It's always mine. Lest we despair, Paul says that God's grace has appeared to bring us out of these things. We know that in the fullness of time, God sent his son to redeem humanity from the guilt of their sins and the power of their sins. In the time of Advent, we've been looking at some dangers in celebrating Christmas in merely external ways. And we've looked at the dangers of celebrating the stuff apart from Christ and celebrating Christ without joy. But here I want to describe the danger of celebrating merely the atonement which Christ comes to bring without understanding its necessary end in sanctification. 
As Paul opens up this letter to Titus, his spiritual son in the faith, he describes the aim of God's redemption as a transformation of the lives of God's people through the knowledge of Him. At the beginning of the chapter, outside of our reading this morning, we read, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for what purpose? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that truth which accords with or goes along with godliness. He's saying you can't have godly living without true understanding. What is the point of that godly living? In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul is presenting God as the Savior of his people who brought a specific gift, which was not just the precious Christ child in his humanity and divinity in a divine mystery present. No, the end which was transformation. That is the gift. The eternal life that he's describing at the beginning of this letter and in our reading today. Through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, God manifested the eternal life, which Jesus will later tell us in John 17 is knowing God. It is not just knowing facts about God in our minds, but having those facts correspond with an inward reality. The word used communicates this idea of an experience of knowing, knowing something down to your bones, knowing something not just in thought, but also in emotion, knowing something so that it transforms what you love. And that's the problem. Man loves his sin, and therefore the solution is God, through the preaching that Paul was entrusted with, is able to deliver them from what they love and give them a higher, greater, superior love the love of God, not just God approving of you, but transforming you so that you love him. And as we'll see in the rest of the message, therefore that love for him becoming a changed life that affects other people. Just as the incarnate word was manifested, God likewise through the preaching of his word manifests eternal life in those who hear so that they can live out the hope of what God has promised. Paul therefore highlights the appearing of the grace of God in the coming of Jesus Christ, calling him the grace of God. This shows us the wonder of what takes, it, what takes place at Christmas. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was not just some sort of metaphysical wonder. That's a big word that just describes things that deal with uh, na the nature of being. It wasn't that God was just doing something to say, oh, the infinite divine can be contained in a human body. That's not the end of the incarnation. Yes, the incarnation is mysterious. It is wonderful. But God was doing something much greater than just demonstrating his power in the unseen realm. In Jesus Christ taking on flesh, Jesus Christ came to communicate the divine nature to men, to his fellow man. As Jesus moved about this earth, we beheld a glory, the glory as of from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came and moved among us, his active presence always brought salvation and changed and transformed people. Every time in the Gospels when Jesus is present, 
you see people come to him and they reach toward him to be transformed. They have a share of his life, an experience. One of my favorite accounts is the woman who presses through the crowd and lays hold upon his garments. And she knows by God's promises, somehow she's seen that when the Messiah comes, he will deliver the people from their illnesses. And she reaches forward and touches him. And Jesus later says that he was aware that the power had gone out. There was a communication of the divine life between Christ and this woman of Israel, who, by which he expressed his love for her in delivering her. Notice how Paul describes the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. You see, when Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he was not just a special baby. He was the manifestation of the grace of God. He was the grace of God in a person. That grace has brought salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly desires and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The appearing of the grace of God has transformed His people so that they're waiting for another appearing, His second coming. When God appeared in the incarnation, His gracious nature was on display. God not only gave mercy but he also brought transformation. This is why God has given us multiple words to describe his nature. He's not just merciful. He doesn't just pardon iniquity. He also gives grace. He empowers people to change. The expression of God's nature reached, reached its apex, its fullest expression, when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, appeared. Paul here is not referring to the Father, our great God, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, our great God and Savior, comma, Jesus Christ. He is calling Jesus the incarnate God, the great God, the highest one possible to conceive, and our Savior. This is the transforming effect of Jesus Christ, knowing Him in friendship as redeemed sinners. He is not just someone who is a man, and therefore His friendship is present, precious to us. No, He is God, and when He calls us friends, it must transform us. There is something amazing to experience in life. I experienced this a few weeks ago, in which a person I greatly admired called me a friend. And this person didn't even actually mean to do it. It was actually just a, a remnant of cordiality and manners. But he said, take care, my friend. And at that moment, knowing what he knows about, this was in my business, so knowing what he knows about computer science and, and theory and understanding and his experiences with companies over the last 20 to 30 years, this is a, a very respectable person, and when he called me friend, it moved my heart. The point of this is not to say that his friendship is more precious than Christ's, but rather, if Jesus Christ, much greater than anyone we could know, not just the greatest man who ever lived, but God in the flesh, when he comes among his people and declares to them that you are by his blood his friend, that must transform your heart. It will have a powerful effect. 
The point that Christ came to display was not just mercy, but also love, and not a love that is merely affectionate or affirming, a love that is effectual, a love that beautifies the object of its love. That in the love of Christ, as we are loved by Christ's love, He not only pardons our iniquity, but He transforms what we love so that we can love Him back. As our great Savior, falling under the curse, Christ not only broke the bonds of lawlessness, He not only broke the, or took away the, the guilt which was over us through His atonement, but He has also set us apart for priestly service. In the giving of the law, God gave Moses a command for Aaron and his sons, and they were to offer up a sacrifice for their purification from sins to the service of God. They were not two atonements, and there was not two purposes in the atonement. There was one atonement and one purpose. Paul, therefore, in this passage, is extremely eager to communicate the goal of salvation as sanctification, holy living in peace. Paul here reiterates the aim and the end or the purpose of the cross, not just atonement, not just forgiveness with God so that we can be justified, but also that we would be renewed. Verse 4, Paul reiterates what he had said in the prior chapter, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... The appearing was in the coming of Christ. He, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we know that the word eternal life in the New Testament is talking about knowing God as a friend. Knowing God in a way by which we are transformed. Being a gracious God, the Father gave His only Son to be the propitiation for sin, granting peace through His blood. God is doing something in Christ, and He's expressing the goodness and the loving kindness of God. God is revealing himself to his people. Jesus Christ, therefore, is the manifestation of all of God's attributes. Having removed the guilt of sin, God has therefore saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. All of this is done that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That means that we might receive the things which go along with knowing God. And true knowledge of God cannot just be information, it must be transformation. The point that I am trying to make, and I believe Paul is wanting to express, is this. The most important way to summarize what we've been talking about is that we were not just saved from our sins, excuse me, we were not just saved from the guilt of our sins, we were saved from our sins so that we do not still need to take place in them. God does not redeem us from the guilt of sin apart from restoring us to His desired calling, to know Him and to live in harmony with Him and His people. God does not wash someone who He doesn't also set apart to know Him in in truth. 
resolving the dilemma that Alexander Solzhenitsyn mentioned, God has done something through the gospel. He has cut out the heart of stone, as Jeremiah prophesied. He's replaced it with a heart of flesh, and he's caused it to beat again. He's not only the master surgeon, he is also one who is a excellent doctor, who doesn't just perform the surgery, but restores the human back to a beating heart so that he can live at peace with God and his fellow men. By God's transforming power, we are no longer captive to that which had enslaved us. Last night, I changed this sentence from has enslaved us to had enslaved us, because I thought it was an important enough point to communicate. We are no longer, brothers and sisters, we are no longer captive to that which had enslaved us. Christ has called us to be his friend, to join him in walking out the law through the Holy Spirit, living at peace with God and our fellow men. And therefore, understanding that calling, we cannot live as if we've never heard that calling. Seeing the aim of God's salvation, the whole scope of redemption to be our sanctification, we may not delude ourselves into a deception that we are still trapped in bondage to those sins from which we are redeemed. Christ's atonement does not just wash us, it sets us apart for holy service. Isaac Watts captured this scriptural understanding in the song that we closed with in Joy to the World. He called his hearers, those who sing, a, he gave them a call to cease from sin in the light of the coming redemption of Christ. In the third stanza, we, we sing, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Do you see the poetry there? He's saying that in Genesis 3, when God caused a curse to come upon the land because of Adam's sin, he then put the earth under a curse, as we learn in Romans 8, waiting for the unveiling of the redemption of Jesus' brothers, God's sons, the sons of glory, as it's said in Romans 8. And therefore, we cannot let sins continue to grow. He says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Brothers and sisters, we may not live as if we're still under the deception that we must be held captive to those things for which Christ's blood not only atones, but redeems us from. The atonement does not end with forgiveness. It is a transformation, again by faith, but it is a transformation nonetheless. Having justified and sanctified his people, God then commissions us to become agents of his renewal and transformation to others. This is the way that joy comes to the world. It came in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul opens his letter to Titus saying that he's been commissioned to cause that hope of eternal life to spread by the preaching of God's word. But it is not through preaching alone that joy comes to the world. Joy also comes to the world through the average ordinary obedience of every Christian. Not all can be apostles. Not all can be teachers. All can do good works, and that is exactly where Paul goes. In verse 8, he says, This saying is trustworthy. 
the, the description of salvation that he just gave. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. If you were here during the Sunday school hour, John Gray gave us a calling through Psalm 90's calling that not only would we pray to God to teach us to number our days, but that in praying we would match our obedience with our petition, that we would also think we ought to number our days. I have this thing on my computer. Whenever I open up a new tab in my browser, it has my age, but it has it down to, I think, the 100,000th place, and it's constantly updating. And the point of that little thing on my computer is time is ticking, brothers and sisters. As I, op- I put it on my computer to guard myself against just opening a new tab and going on. If you've ever spent time in Wikipedia, you've, you may have been lost in Facebook and Twitter. And j- Don't get lost in the things of life, brothers and sisters. Devote yourself to good works. Paul commands Titus here to teach God's people the whole of their salvation, the fullness of the gospel, not a truncated gospel which delivers from the guilt of sin but not from the power of sin. He gives Titus a command, therefore, for them to understand the fullness of the implications of the gospel. It may sound very technical, and sometimes it is my apology that it sometimes sounds boring, But you have to be able to think about the gospel in those categories. And God gave us words, and we communicate through those words. God gave us his scripture, and his scripture teaches us the truth. The point that we have to understand, whether we use the technical terms of justification and sanctification, or we just understand forgiveness and grace as empowerment, Whatever level we want to understand them, we have to understand the cross. It is not enough to see the coming of Christ as just a cute baby thing. We can't see the cross as just a guilt and forgiveness thing. We have to see it as setting us apart for holy service, to be used as instruments in God's hands in his household, in his temple. It is my concern in the modern Christian era that we have developed what I call the cult of brokenness. Now, some of you, I'm, I'm pressing on a button for you because you like this term brokenness, and I like it too. But in, in the way that we've used the term, we have sometimes created these little wayposts by which people camp out at in their journey in Christ. And they cling to this notion of brokenness in a way that I think is unhealthy and unhelpful. Yes, we all still deal with the ongoing inward corruption. We are told to put to death the old man, which implies that the old man is trying to come back to life. Because we're also told that when Christ died, we died. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. All those who were baptized were baptized into his death. And yet we're told to put to death that which is dead. It's a mystery. The Christian life is indeed a mystery. But in the way that we've used this term brokenness in the modern evangelical context, sometimes we imply that you're always going to be as broken as you are today. And I I deny that. We were once led astray. We were, were once foolish. We were once enslaved to our desires. 
but now we've been set apart for holy service. We must always reject a false humility of brokenness, which implies that our obedience is somehow conditional based on how we feel that day or how close we have been to our spiritual disciplines. We must, as Christians, determine to make a good improvement upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, Jesus Christ. No amount of moral repair or seeking to do good things apart from Jesus Christ can be a lasting structure. Those who hear these words of mine and build upon them are like the one who built his house upon a rock, Jesus said to his disciples. Those who do not obey his words and don't build upon the faith that his words are supposed to create, they, they will be like the house that's taken away in the storm. Paul says no one can lay a foundation, and sometimes we think no one can do anything greater than the work of Jesus Christ. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean that we should be satisfied with a foundation. He means you should build on it. You should add to or make an improvement upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you've ever seen a tax deed, I get to see a lot of those in my life, uh, you, you'll see the land value, and then it, there's this word that says improvements. And it means the things that are built on the land, they're built on the foundation. They don't tax the, the building apart from the land, but you can't have a building without the foundation in the land. We as Christians must therefore build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, not to earn righteousness, but to work out the point for our salvation. Good works, therefore, are the duty of every Christian in this world. We have obligations due our circumstance and station in life. Station is a very old word, but I like it because old words are helpful to defeat the melees of our modern era. And our station in life is a great phrase because it tells us of the nobility of the place where God has put us. If you are single and constantly wanting to be married so that you are despising the gift of singleness, you are not content with your station in life. If you are married and constantly wanting that person to die or divorce them, you are not content in your station in life. If you think that If only that kid could get their act together, God is sovereign over all times and places. He knows where you are, and he has gracious things for you to do. One of the greatest ways to deal with the pain of a terrible circumstance is to be so devoted to good works that you forget about the problem. One of the greatest ways that we defeat temptation is not by facing temptation and wrestling against it, Our adversary is a thousand times more powerful than we are in our flesh. It is to be so devoted to other good things that we're simply not in the battle. It's too far afield, but if you remember the time of David when he committed the sins of Bathsheba, it's the most helpful thing I've ever heard about the nature of fighting lust and and sexual temptation. The beginning of the chapter says, "Now now in the time when kings went out to war, David was on his household. He was in the wrong place. He was not devoted to God in pushing out the inhabitants of the land. 
Christians, therefore, should not merely think of good works as their private spiritual disciplines. Hear this closely, brothers and sisters. It is not enough that you develop a lifestyle of reading your scriptures privately or attending corporate worship individually or with your family or merely even resisting temptation. Good works are not those things. Those things are good deeds, but the context of good works in the scriptures is very clearly the work of God's grace transforming you and through you, God's grace coming to other people. The scriptures are replete with examples of admonitions to good deeds. Therefore, we must be intentional. Why should we be intentional? It is because it makes it, the New Testament makes it so clear the duties of Christians to, to be agents of God's transformation in the world that if we should not be intentional and we should not seek to have a practical plan or even a schedule by which we do them and we forget forever to do good works, we will, be, we will be missing the aim for why we are still here. We were not put on this earth just to get saved and stay saved and make no improvement upon God's grace. We are supposed to be agents of his transformation. If you had one quote to take away considering 2019, I would say this, the Holy Spirit is not quenched by the use of a planner. It has been my practice at this time in the year, and I did, I've done it a few years with my wife. I haven't done it as, as often, but I'm going to do it this year, that I give serious prayerful consideration to how 2019 should go. Teach us to number our days in 2019, that we would seek you, that we would get a heart of wisdom. I want to read just a few verses. You, we will not have time to turn there, and I, I will try not to comment on these, but I just want to give you a picture of the hundreds just a small sampling of the hundreds of commands in the New Testament to give ourselves to good works, beginning with Jesus in Luke nine, Luke 6, excuse me, love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. Do you want a great reward? I hope you want a great reward. I want a great reward. And you will be sons of the Most High. Getting called the Son of the Most High, that's the reward. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We have a ministry in this church now, thanks to Liz House and other people, who are ministering outside of the abortion clinics, the one that's in Kettering, and oh, that it would be shut down. But until it is shut down, a great fulfillment of James 1.27 is to go visit the orphans and the widows who are going to be slaughtered. James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you by his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I've begun to put more and more book reviews on my Facebook, and somebody asked me why I was doing that. And it's this, because I think our good works should be shown to other people because of James 3.13. Let him show his good works in the meekness of wisdom. I'm not proud that I've read all these books, but it, the reason I do that is because a few years ago, one of my friends that I met through the internet did the same thing. He put up a book review and I read it and I was powerfully impacted by God's grace and encouraged, yeah, I could read a book that hard. 
I said I wasn't going to comment. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 18. Listen to this, you who are rich. As for the rich in the present age, most of you are rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Hebrews 13, 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. So many people think good deeds should be private, not according to the Scriptures. Yes, Jesus tells us to go into our prayer closet and pray in secret, but He's speaking to the Pharisees in that context who love to be seen in public worship as holy. Yes, we are to pray in private, but should we also do good works in public? Yes, so that the Gentiles would glorify God on the day that they're visited. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, this is perhaps the most important verse of all the verses I've shared, in your hearts set apart Christ as holy or sanctify Christ as Lord always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Understanding how to share your faith is one of the greatest things that every single Christian should do in order to do good works. Hebrews thirteen sixteen. do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The reason I want to impress upon you, the reason Paul has told Titus to insist upon these things is because these are excellent and profitable to you. You need to know that God considers these things as the aim for the cross, the end for which the cross took place, so that in the moment when you are tempted to not give, to not extend yourself, to not speak up a word and say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ, that you will remember the reward that you will remember the understanding that these sacrifices are pleasing to God. People want to, Christians especially, want to know how they can be pleasing to God. One of the great ways to be pleasing to God is this, that in your expression of grace to someone else, God's grace flows through you. And it not only is grace to them, it is also pleasing to God. It's an act of worship to do good works. Christ declared to his disciples that they were supposed to be the salt of the earth and lights of the world. If you still have your Christmas tree up, and I hope you do, I want you to go home and look at it. And if you have a star, I want you to think about the point that Christmas trees are making. Christians are supposed to be lights of the world. Abraham was supposed to look up and see the stars in the heavens, and he was supposed to count them. And God told him a promise, so shall your descendants be. We are supposed to be lights of the world. And just like there is a true star on the top of the Christmas tree, and just as there are lights wrapped around the Christmas trees, we are supposed to be that image in the world. We're supposed to be a living presentation or a representation where the whole tree is pointing up to the apex, that as we shine as lights in the world, people would see the glory of God and come to Christ. We are supposed to be like constellations which point to the true north star. So as we close, as those who trust in Christ for salvation, let us renounce all evil. Do not believe that you have to be enslaved from which you you were delivered. 
not only renounce all evil, but devote ourselves. Let us devote, devote ourselves to good works as we await the reward, his appearing. Let's close. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given your apostles powerful words to teach the church. We thank you that Paul's letter to Titus not only made it to Titus, but it has made it to us. We thank you for these precious promises and the knowledge that as we do good works in this coming year, that you will, through those good works, express your heart and your mercy and your kindness, which leads to repentance, that, that through us you will give grace to others. We pray, Father, that you would make us agents of your transforming in the world, that we would not only be saved, but we would be set apart to holy service. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.